This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. And you're listening to Offspring, a podcast all about the anxieties of a parenting journey. This is episode six, Flight Paths. I can't quite pinpoint the exact date I decided I wanted to go sober, but I definitely know the month. It was a Saturday night in November 2011, and I was home by myself. The week before, I had utterly blown a relationship after less than half a year, and it could all pretty much be put down to booze and drugs. Now, there were other factors, of course, but they all grew from those twin gardens in one way or another. To compensate, I spent the week before that Saturday coping by going out every night and beating my liver up as brutally as possible weeknights be damned by the time the saturday morning rolled around i knew i'd had enough the week's escapades hadn't helped out and they hadn't even been slightly fun or funny the tipping point came the night before the friday it wasn't a dramatic thing in fact it was profoundly mediocre I spent the after work hours drinking with a friend when he decided we should go to Canary Wharf. I obliged, but about 10 minutes after we got there, we lost each other. Stuck there by myself contemplating what to do next, I caught my reflection in the giant mirrors of whatever gaudy sterile bar I was unfortunate enough to be in at that time amongst the currency brokers and financiers of London. Clad in a cheap suit, sipping overpriced beer, surrounded by vapid people, I loathed what I saw. The image didn't hit me like a meteor or anything overly dramatic. It wasn't like the room suddenly went silent and clarity dawned on me from heaven. No, the moment was much more subtle. The figure in the reflection looked exactly like how I felt, and it was deflating. I could see that the fun was long gone and... The image I had of myself as some newfound, hard-living rogue was absolute nonsense. I was lonely, I was bored, I was poor, I was tired and I was heartbroken. I wanted to be anyone other than myself, and I wanted to be anywhere other than Canary Wharf. On Saturday, when I eventually woke up, I began seriously contemplating if I should really commit myself to drying out. I was finally breaking the news honestly to myself that I had problems I needed to deal with, and I could only do that sober. It felt freeing and empowering, but it also gave me a lot of anxiety. Regardless, I 
soldiered on. And by that evening, I was pouring out the wine I had in the fridge and I downloaded a copy of The Easy Way to Stop Drinking for my Kindle. It's kind of ridiculous looking back on it that within 24 hours, I'd gone from trying to bury the pain under liters of booze to a firm commitment to undertaking sobriety. But it also felt like I no longer had a choice. Once you acknowledge that you've got a problem, it's tough to shove that genie back in the bottle. I wish I could say that was the end of things, but it really works out like that. That moment was actually just the start of a 26-month-long journey towards drying out completely. A lot of the specifics of that time aren't essential for this discussion because they're immensely personal and they're often embarrassing. But it does need to be stated that they were 26 challenging months where things got much worse before they got better. I got clean a few times only to inevitably rebound in horrifying, scary ways. During those rebounds, I would abuse dangerous levels of drugs and alcohol with a feverish intensity that I never had in my worst pre-2011 days. It was bleak. There were whole days where I just sobbed alone in a dark room, thinking I would never escape my own torture. It took heroic levels of support and sacrifice from my family in the ensuing years to get where I am now, and that's... Well, to cut a very long story short, it's a place where I've been completely sober for nearly eight years. The difference in my life is incomparable by every conceivable metric. I'm honestly not sure I would even still be around without sobriety. If I was, I sure as hell wouldn't be living this life I am right now with my family. My sobriety defines a lot of who I am, and it's helped shape me into somebody that, generally speaking, I'm getting more proud of each day. I might be more than my sobriety in total, but at the same time, I'm really nothing without it. So, why the long self-indulgent recap about my past history with narcotics and alcohol, you might be saying, as I promised you a podcast about parenthood. Well, along with my other worries about fatherhood, the fear of relapse is something that constantly weighs on my mind. And this can sometimes be difficult to reconcile because I don't necessarily agree with the wisdom that addiction is a disease. And while I appreciate why people frame the issue this way, I'm still on the fence if it's the right way to think about it. Addiction is a health issue. It's a severe affliction and it can be fatal, just like many diseases can be. There's no doubt about that. But I can't catch a relapse or be struck down with one simply because of genetics alone. At a certain level, I would still have to have some active participation in the process. I would have to cross the relapse bridge by myself. So if I think that I have the choice to stay sober, then I shouldn't be scared, right? Well, no, because sobriety is painfully and terrifyingly tenuous. Sobriety is like an experimental plane from the 1920s. It can fly, it can achieve incredible things. But you need an aviator with a lot of energy because flying the damn thing is an enormous amount of work. The pilot has to always be on their toes. They have to be able to patch up holes that appear in the flimsy walls. Uh, they need to be able to navigate 
back to their proper path in the freezing darkness when the plane gets blown off course. They have to be continually checking and fixing the engines to make sure they keep running and not catch fire. Without this endless attention to detail and maintenance, the entire plane would just fall out of the sky. And there's a good reason then why aviators in the 1920s didn't take newborn babies up into the sky with them. As it stands, I do quite a bit of work to keep my plane in the sky, and most of it's not conscious work anymore. I spent several years pivoting my life towards lifestyle patterns that allow me to stay relatively well-rounded and rested. For example, while it might not appear to be the case if you look at me, I do exercise quite a bit, predominantly just to sustain positive mental health. I also no longer hang out in pubs or in many social gatherings because I find it increasingly uncomfortable. Perhaps most importantly, I try to have downtime and learn hobbies and go through new excursions such as this whole podcasting thing. Basically, I try to keep busy through curiosity and through being selfish in my life. Ironically, though, this form of selfishness tends to make me a better husband and a much nicer person. This has all inevitably changed now that we have a child. I can't be particularly selfish anymore because I'm not the most important thing in my life anymore. And that's definitely not a bad thing in itself. But it makes me woefully anxious because before we had our baby, I spent years maintaining sobriety through carefully altering my life where it was needed. And I'm scared that if I can't keep tinkering like that, I might make a mistake and lose a mental battle when I'm at my weakest. It's difficult to put into words what it's like to be at your weakest and be facing a relapse. But for argument's sake, let's try to imagine what it would be like if you could get mosquito bites directly on your brain. By the time you got your second or third bite, you would know that you shouldn't scratch it because sticking a finger into your brain is the stupidest idea imaginable. Yet, like with any itch, the more you tried to avoid thinking about it, the more inflamed it would begin to feel. And if you didn't have sound strategies and help to work around it, then it would just sap your energy until you began to break down. Since our memories have this incredible knack of being unable to recall what pain actually feels like, you'd probably start to bargain with yourself. You would convince yourself that last time you stuck your finger in your brain to scratch the itch, the fallout wasn't that bad. You would also remind yourself that you stopped scratching eventually, so you'd just be able to do it again. After finally wearing yourself down through tough negotiations, you'd snap and you'd scratch with everything you've got and then you'd be hit with that combination of self-hatred and pure euphoria that our tiny little brains have no idea how to process. That complex combination would likely result in you just scratching away until once again you're lying in tears of agony because you've been scratching your brain. Okay, so reading that back, I'm not sure that analogy works entirely, but hopefully you get the point of what I'm trying to say. I think it would probably work if we just took out the brain part and we just talked about an itchy bite generally. Anywho, I might be worried about nothing. I don't feel like I want to scratch any itches as we speak right now. Conversely, though, this has been the most challenging year of my life, and I know there will be new things coming up very soon that I'm not prepared for and that I won't be able to prepare for. 
So the status quo I live in now kind of means nothing for the future. The change that has really screwed with my head and that freaks me out the most in this regard is just this arrival of unparalleled fatigue that we've had over the past year and that I only see getting worse as we get older. I mean, that was one of my biggest fears before we had Ava. And that came from mostly other parents, if I'm going to be straight up with you. Because I understand why parents think it's really hilarious when they tell the mere mortals without children that they have no idea what it's like to be truly tired. But before we had Ava, it would make me really antsy when a parent scoffed at me and told me, oh, you have no idea what tired is. I would get these like powerful pangs of panic-laced anxiety. And the reason for that is because fatigue is one of the biggest triggers that can lead people to use drugs and alcohol because fatigue affects every part of your mind and body. And I know that fatigue changes me into someone I don't particularly like. I've experienced that plenty of times over the past year. I become irritable and mean and depressed and lazy and bitter. I get angry at my one-year-old daughter who has no concept of why what she's doing could be annoying for me because she's literally one and it's just part of her developmental journey. And I can see myself from outside my body being unresponsive and cold and grumpy and unreasonable with the people that I love. Yet I still end up doing it because I lack the energy to actually interject. Like a lot of people, fatigue wears down my resolve and it leads me to making bad decisions. Because of this, I actually get why parents would use drugs and different substances to combat the overwhelming tiredness that comes with parenthood. Sedatives like booze, weed and opiates to me kind of make sense in the context of parenting. They give you an endorphin rush that helps you lose focus on how exhausted you are. Then they help you sleep, which can be like a gift from God. Speed focused drugs like amphetamines, I can see the value in some of those too. I mean, you think about it. A little bit of speed would just give parents the power to flat out ignore sleep and get all that stuff done that keeps a household running while feeling human or even more than human. So how could that not sound appealing? Now there might be some parents out there, they might be able to use different drugs in moderation to help keep them fresh and I suppose they're the gift to people that can mask problems like fatigue for a while and deal with those problems within a reasonable time frame. They don't just keep accruing loan shark levels of debt on their mental health balance. Unfortunately, that's not me. I can't start masking problems like fatigue or I will never stop. When I begin masking problems, I just create new issues that I try and also mask and it's a vicious circle and it's punishingly cliche. Instead, I have to normally deal with my fatigue by, you know, resting and sleeping which is pretty much impossible if you've got a sick one-year-old or a sick six-month-old or a sick three-month-old or a sick nine-month-old or a sick eight-month-old. Basically, if you have a sick baby, don't expect to sleep. Just expect to be screamed at. Gemma and I have always had fantastic open communication and we continuously work on it, but even that has taken a hit with the arrival of Ava. We used to not have that much responsibility and we were flexible, so it gave us time to work on those things. 
Whereas now it's like extra work when we're already working at work and then working at home trying to bring up our daughter. What's terrifying as well is that Ava, as far as I'm aware, is a pretty good kid. I mean, I know she's a pretty good kid. I see her all the time. She's my kid. I know that she's wonderful. She's had some challenges like getting sick a lot that has necessitated multiple trips to the hospital. But she's a pretty good sleeper, generally speaking. And she's pretty pleasant. Okay, that's an understatement. She's got an absolutely beautiful personality. Even with all that, though, we still experience fatigue in this past year like neither of us could have ever imagined. And I'm just worried that this is going to increase with time. And as the stresses get more and more intense and the ability to handle them gets worse and worse, the precarious stability of the past eight years is going to go into disarray. I worry that more and more sleep deprivation will bring more self-loathing, self-doubt, Anxiety, panic, depression, isolation, and guilt. I feel like, even though it's hit me with an intensity I've never experienced already, it's only going to increase, and I'm not going to know how to counteract that, because it's all still so new to me, and there's no step-by-step handbook on this. Perhaps I'm just overthinking things and letting my anxiety run away with my logical brain. Maybe things will actually get easier in the near future and I won't have anything to worry about. Maybe we'll get to sleep eight hours a night for the rest of our lives. Putting my own issues aside, drug and alcohol abuse in the home is a colossal problem we as a community still have trouble facing up to. A staggering third of families in New Zealand face issues with substance abuse and episodes of family harm involving alcohol and or drugs are on the rise. And this is why I'm confident assuming that if you're listening to this, you know children that have been affected by family addiction. There's even a distinct possibility that your own children have been affected, or your childhood was affected by family addiction. Now, as mentioned earlier, there are undoubtedly some parents that can use alcohol and or some drugs in honest moderation. And I do honestly believe that. But what most of us know from personal experience is that there are also plenty that can't. There are plenty of parents out there with substance problems who won't or can't acknowledge that fact. And some won't because they feel fearful. You can't really be angry about that. That's where we'd need, I suppose, better systems in place to help. Addiction doesn't happen overnight. It's a long trick that consists of little steps, and it's insidious. I can vouch for the fact that it's hard to realize that you might have crossed the Rubicon. You prolong facing up to your addictions as long as you can because it is scary and it makes you feel like a failure. And as a community, we kind of make people feel like failures, and some of us even enjoy that. A lot of the people with problems, oddly enough, are usually the ones that won't judge their friends for acknowledging their issues, but they won't extend the same kindness to themselves that they extend to others around them. They continue to overpower in them a voice that's telling them that they have a problem, even though it hurts like hell to do so. 
these people need love and kindness because nobody is being harder on them than they are themselves. In saying that though, I do think that there are some people that just refuse to acknowledge their issues out of ignorance and sometimes actually just plain arrogance. These are the people that tend to perform all kinds of rituals to convince themselves and everyone around them that actually being unable to get through the day without a beer or a spliff is fine. They might stop using for maybe a week or even a month to prove to everyone they can do it. During this short sentence of self-imposed abstinence, they'll be miserable to everyone around them and they won't even acknowledge it. But after that period, they will often reward themselves by going extra hard with their usage because they've just proven to everyone, hey, I don't have a problem. It's not surprising really, considering as a nation we glorify these types of efforts. Having a whole annual charity based around Dry July sends such a strange message I think. It shouldn't feel like a feat for someone to give up drinking for a single month, should it? More depressingly though, some won't actually even go that far in their performances anyway. Instead, they'll make a huge deal out of what are essentially meaningless gestures. They might commit to, I don't know, no longer drinking spirits, or they'll make a show of calling in to confirm they're just at the pub with a mate, and they'll pat themselves on the back for the show of good faith, and things will probably improve for a little while. Like clockwork though, things will then slip, and they will go back to normal. A couple will become a few, a few will become several. Spirits will become the more sensible economic choice, and kids will inevitably go back to walking on eggshells all the time, just in case mum or dad is in a mood. When I've seen those people in my life, I've been left feeling helpless, useless and sort of full of despair, and it's not because I think I'm better than them, and I'm being condescending, it's 100% the opposite of that. My last couple of years as an addict might have been humble, but I've perfectly played the role of the arrogant addict before. I'm only human, and I don't doubt that in another scenario, I am that person again. The fact that vision haunts me so much gives me some confidence that hopefully my plane won't follow that course I fear anytime soon, or hopefully anytime at all. But I don't think I'll ever truly stop fearing it, and I don't think I ever should stop fearing it, because the moment you stop paying attention to where your plane is flying is probably the moment you crash into a mountain range you thought you had already cleared. Even if I get to old age with a grown-up child and my sobriety intact, I don't think I've earned the right to stop worrying about the condition of my plane.
course was a cover of Weezer's iconic track Say It Ain't So off the 1994 breakthrough record The Blue Album. The cover was performed by Jen Champion off her album also called The Blue Album. Just a couple of other tracks I want to draw attention to. The first was Cinnadust by Dennis Huddleston also known as 36 and the other one was called Zone Out by The Beta Zone. 
Offspring is written and produced by me, Bevan Morgan, at Momo Studios, and the one and only Kitty Kitty Door Aotearoa. Thanks to FreeFM 89.0 and AccessMedia.nz for their help and distribution of this podcast. And thanks to you for listening. Hopefully, we'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening to this FreeFM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support FreeFM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.